I look back to some of the days when I had my ego popped a bit too, I would just say it would be be coachable. Um, no matter where you are too in your career, um, you know if I didn't if I didn't have the coaches and the mentors that I st you know still do to this day even, um, there's no way my career would have sort of advanced you know to where it is now or maybe as some people say you know as quickly as it has. Um, but it, it's certainly because I would never turn down an opportunity to, you know, have a conversation with somebody I looked up to or somebody that I knew was would be willing to have just that crucial conversation and not be down a peg or two. So I think it would be a matter of be coachable. Plus on the billboard side, it would link nicely to, you know, obviously a call to action for, you know, one of our one of our actual you know, businesses. So that part I think would go quite well. Your link dreams. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. How's it going, everyone? This is the PT Lens Podcast with me, Waleed, and our friend Daryl. What's up? Hey, guys. How are you? What's up? Man, this is a this is a very exciting one, right, Waleed? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm excited for this one. Um, like I like I, I mentioned before, like prior to recording this right now, like I saw some of Daryl's stuff like way way early on when I was starting up my young physio career and I saw some of the things that he was saying and it was really interesting and um immediately I told Prab about this and I was like we gotta get we gotta get Daryl on this podcast he just he just mm -hmm. has so much information that I think is necessary and useful for new grads yeah um so here we are now finally yeah. we got Daryl on the podcast yeah and actually the first time I saw a piece of Daryl's content was he had this free, um, he had this free negotiating your contract guide. Mm -hmm. And, um, there was something about that. There's something on that about mentorship and I actually used that. Not going to say where, but I used that at one of the locations at work and it really helped me. Mm -hmm. So that's something that, you know, we're not always, it's just very hard to teach in school. Mm -hmm. And that's something that was very helpful for me and it was free. So instantly, you know, you give the value I followed, and mm -hmm. I've been getting value from his account ever since. So, Daryl, it's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, Prop, did you uh, unsubscribe yet, though? Unsubscribe from what? From, from you know, after you downloaded the guide, I got your email and stuff. Did you, so are you still following, or did you get the guide and unsubscribe? Oh, I, I stayed. <laughs> I'm, oh, a, I, I'm a guy who commits. I like, <laughs> I'm not afraid of commitment. <laughs> awesome, awesome. And well, I know where you work, so I can always find you. So, I know. Will he just never subscribed? Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I'm gonna. Ch I'm actually gonna check now. I'm gonna. I'm gonna talk to you about. This is wonderful, man. There this you is go. too good. What a, what thanks, a start, guys. Thanks. Thanks for the invite, though. I really appreciate it. Yeah. No. Oh, problem. we also have to give a shout out to Robin for actually making this happen too. Um, Robin really got us the connection going with Daryl also. Um, so huge shout out to Robin. We have a podcast coming with him too, guys. It's coming. Yeah, that'll be that'll be a good one. So you can, hopefully your uh, your followers will pay attention to that one. Oh yeah, for yes. sure. So Daryl, why don't you? We won't introduce you for you. We'll let you you know tell us a bit about yourself and what you've been up to recently. And um, yeah, go ahead. Um, and what you're all about, man. What you're all about. What I'm all about. Yeah. So so like you two, actually, I'm a U of T grad. Um, which is good. So one of my enjoyed my time at U of T. I graduated in what, 2006, so 15 years ago, which is crazy mm -hmm. to think. Um, 
probably the most influential person I mean, at my in my UFT days was Eason. So I'm sure you guys had a good relationship with Eason as well. Yeah, great guy. And Definitely. you know, Eason kind of carved my path down the um, orthopedic, you know, clinical skill side of things. So Eason actually was a mentor for me outside of school, mm -hmm. um, or outside, I guess, of our of our master's degree. Yeah. Um, went pretty pretty aggressively actually through the level system and um, my goal was to finish the fellowship as fast as I possibly could so met some really good people um, actually in London um, it's where I actually started my my level system and uh, met some great uh, influential mentors and instructors at that point and well that's actually where I first met your boss Tom um, mm -hmm. and I'll actually never forget this guy we were talking about proprioception of the wrist, and this guy did a handstand walk across the room, and I was like, where's this guy coming from? Um, <laughs> but you know there's always a moment where people are influential in your, uh, in your network, and I'll, I'll be honest, there's probably like 20, 30 people in that class, and him and Jeff Romke were the only two that I remember in that class. So, so Tom certainly did something to make it uh, memorable. We've been good buddies, and... Uh, and you know, clinic owner colleagues for for quite some time now. Look, man, um, Tom, Tom needs any excuse to get like start doing a handstand or start crawling. And <laughs> he needs any excuse. That's <laughs> that's how he. That's his staple. Hey, real question is, Daryl, did he t did he teach you how to do a handstand? No, he didn't. Oh, man. I was. Uh, you should have subscribed to his handstand. Uh, <laughs> His handstand workout. His handstand there, workshop. Nice. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I'm gonna have to bring him into boot camp to do a handstand workshop. <laughs> you know, just we'll change the clinical skills uh, um, session that night. That's uh, all. So then, then from there, I was actually. Um, so once I finished my fellowship, I was working in a small clinic. Uh, started mm -hmm. in a you know more of a suburban area, which I was actually quite. Um, you know, I found quite influential actually on the growth in my career. Um, mm -hmm. Most people would have thought I would have. I was born and raised in Hamilton, so you know why don't you just work in the clinic five minutes down the street from where you grew up? Um, mm -hmm. But I actually started in Dunville, had a good mentor and a clinic owner there. Probably didn't really appreciate or realize just how much I learned about practice management and you know running a clinic at the time because I was so focused on clinical skills and clinical development. Mm -hmm. um, but that transitioned into um, pretty much a professor development lead for a large corporation at the time, which many of you guys would know is PT Health. And kind of interesting, 15 years later, PT Health has been sold you know, to a publicly traded company in the UK. From there, it was sold to Lifemark. And then obviously, as you guys all know, Loblaws slash Shoppers now owns Lifemark. So kind of an interesting mm -hmm. journey over 15 years of kind of where we all started. Yeah. Um, you know, from there we'll kind of fast track a little bit. Ran ran a network of clinics and did their operations and their development for about five years. Um, actually, um, in sort of a large community hospital out in you know the Hamilton West, Lynn, if you will. And it was one of those things where I said I would never practice in a hospital, which I didn't. Um, but I certainly never put aside the opportunity from a leadership perspective in the hospital. And I would say mm -hmm. I probably learned a ton. Um, much more than I anticipated, so started sort of just managing and overseeing therapy services from sort of an outreach to sort of look at the budget and, you know, how can we improve the systems and processes in the hospital. Um, and then went from there, went to an executive position and spent a couple of years in that executive position. Um, mm. Just kind of before, I guess, embarking back upon sort of what we do now, which is a lot of coaching on both the clinic owner and uh, the clinician side. So, so I'm a sort of a founder, um, a mentorship bootcamp. We also 
started a recruitment sort of agency type of strategy around PT Harmony where we actually spend a lot of time, you know, matching clinicians and we match them with clinic owners and vice versa to really bring together strong clinic owners as well as really strong um, coachable clinicians. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm a co-founder of Clinic Accelerator. So we're currently, I would say at this stage, we're currently coaching well over 400 clinic owners across the country. Um, we do quite a bit of work actually with a large group that's growing in Australia, um, as well as just you know some other clinics in North America, as well as um, actually quite, quite a few little small clinics internationally, which is pretty exciting to see just sort of the wow. development of physio, you know, globally, as opposed to just what we see in Canada. But certainly the bulk of what we do is um, is national. Yeah, wow. that's, that's great. Um, yeah, I was looking um, at PT Harmony and some of your other ventures that you just talked about. And it's really interesting to see how not only are you supporting physio residents, physios, but also the clinic owners. It's like you're it's like you're trying to target every aspect of the space and it mm-hmm. seems to me like the reason you're doing that is to try to you know really make a positive change into what you know what's been a practice for so long but mm-hmm. obviously all of us have seen the ways in which it can grow right so w- mm-hmm. what was it specifically that inspired you to mentor new residents and grads specifically because you have a lot of content targeted at them yeah like was there like a like a moment in dunville where you were like i have it all wrong like what was it (laughs) what was what were those moments what was the inspiration yeah so so i think you know if you were to go back to my early days and if you were to chat with my mentors then they would have said i was a huge pain in the ass um you know i was i was pretty i was pretty competent i think as far as practice went or at least i had confidence and I, I listened well I suppose you could say um, so I ran a busy clinic I ran a busy practice you know I was coaching how to use an assistant like early in my career so the clinic was actually doing very well um, but I always complained about the mentorship I wasn't learning this but it was kind of you know really really interesting back then because even though I had really only focused in unfortunately at the time as mentorship being about clinical skills and clinical development which we did which I did get some of um, for sure, but that was sort of what I only honed in on. So it was, it was sort of indirectly when I learned about business and practice management from my owner and, and coach and mentor at the time. But what I think I, I really looked at is we built sort of this this program and in, in our PT health days, to be honest, like we would hire, you know, 10 new grads at one time or, you know, that went up at one point. I think we actually hired about 22 new grads. And it was really about developing the program um, for them, but sort of the, you know, what did I do wrong type of thing? Same thing as we built it primarily on clinical skill development. Um, mm. and as I kind of went from, you know, starting a clinic or, you know, starting in a clinic and learning how to actually function within that clinic, I then went to fixing up a clinic to see whether that clinic that was acquired, you know, could that clinic actually, you know, become profitable and then starting a brand new clinic. One of my other mentors at the time, who's still a mentor of mine today, you know, really pulled me inside and said, you know, you're actually really shit at mentoring. I was like, oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> and, wow. and you know, what I prided myself on was to mentor young physios because that was sort of where I th- thought there was a gap in my career. And mm. turns out there wasn't. But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? But um, mm-hmm. one of the things that... So I looked at it, I really took it to heart and he was like, yeah, but the thing is, is like when you're on site, somebody can follow you. But if you really want to mentor and coach people, 
you can't be here anymore. So you actually have to have them replace you and do better than you. That was sort of something that I've carried over, especially as, you know, now that, you know, I, from a clinic ownership perspective, you know, I never look at that clinic anymore to have anybody just sort of level up to me. My, my goal or my, my role as a coach and a mentor is to make sure they surpass me. Um, and I've seen that, you know, sometimes I suppose it's some hard on, on some egos at times, but at the end of the day, it's nice to start to see some of the junior people to you, you know, surpass and, and hit milestones that you actually never, never even achieved, you know, as an N of one. But seeing multiple people grow beyond those limits is, is very exciting and rewarding. And I think that was sort of the switch for me, sort of on that mentorship side. Um, and then the other piece, though, is, you. you know, I... Sorry, I interrupted you. It must, yeah, it must have hurt you to hear like something that you're so pride, like you put your pride into in terms of like mentoring people, and someone comes up to you and say you're not, you're not pretty, good. you're not that good at it. No, um, no, in that like, moment, you're not good. <laughs> and on that yeah. point, it was like, no, no, you're not even good. You're just, you're shit at you're, this. You're really bad. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and the thing too is, and I think that's sort of the you know the from a perspective of knowing whether you have the right coach and mentor, right? Is that you know, it's not really about blowing you know, smoke up your ass. It's not sunshine and roses all the time, right? It's somebody that's going to push you a little bit harder. Oh, yeah. and it was really mm-hmm. to the point where he's like, look, you need to figure this out. You know, we see you as, you know, the opportunity here exists. And if we're going to grow these clinics and we're going to grow this business, we need you to be able to take, you know, that quality lens that you have, but you need to be able mm-hmm. to marry it on the business and practice management side. But right now we can't rely on you as an N of one. It's just not scalable. Yeah. So it was really interesting. It was not so much where it was, you know, sink or swim. It was like, hey, let's go back to the drawing board, come back with ideas, strategies, and let's figure out whether we can give you the tools and resources you need um, mm-hmm. in order to deliver that. Right. So sort of that, you know, when I was younger in my career, it was really about entrepreneurship, right? So really looking at it to say, hey, what infrastructure can an organization give you in order to help you be successful with this type of program or idea that you have? Whereas now I've taken it on the entrepreneurial side, especially with clinic ownership and, you know, Waterview as well, um, or like our clinic that we own in Grimsby, as well as just what we do with Clinic Accelerator and Mentorship Bootcamp. But but from a perspective there, the other piece, though, is I knew I could mentor as well young clinicians. Mm-hmm. But I, what, I, what I really wanted to test myself with is could I mentor clinicians that were actually more senior to me in a different sector? Right, so it's actually one of the reasons I took the job at the hospital as well. Um, I wanted to know, like, it's easy to talk the talk, but could I actually walk the walk? Um, Mm -hmm. And then I was working with different disciplines, and to be honest, coming into the you know to the hospital sector um, as the private sector guy, it it really required a significant learning curve, I would say, um, Mm -hmm. to build relationships all over again, to understand systems and policy. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you start to think about changing procedures and, and processes, but getting team to buy into it. So, mm-hmm. so it's one of those things is really that for me prove that my passion really was on the mentorship side. Um, right. and it really does come down to the balance between quality and in business and practice management at the same time. Right. What was one of the challenges that you faced uh, when trying to initially mentor senior cl- clinicians? like? clinicians that have a little bit more experience than you yeah so the challenge would i would say is that i still sort of have this initial thought to speak to people and say hey i want you to do this or i want you to have you ever thought about this as opposed to just listening 
Um, and I would still mm. say it's probably still a bit of my Achilles heel at times as a, even as like a coach in adventures, mm. you, you know, there's still, and I think it's a bit of inherently inside of us as physios, right? As we want to fix everything. Um, mm. But if you think about it from a true leadership perspective, it's, it's having to be able to, you know, self-reflect on those, on those moments to realize like, okay, I was trying to fix this problem as mm. opposed to, you know, learning how to lead through that problem. So I would say that was my initial thought, even though I spent a lot of time observing, trying to figure out where the, you know, the potential gaps in the areas of opportunity were, it still mm -hmm. required a whole like massive team, to be honest. There was, well, well nearly a hundred people that reported to me um, right. at that, at that stage that um, mm -hmm. I had to get on board. Right. And not everybody was rowing in the same direction, but mm -hmm. I definitely, my goal was to get 80% of them rowing in the same direction as me. No, of course. And, and that's that's tough. So again, like changing the mindset in real time, it seems like most of the barriers came from within for you. Yes, there was external things there that are ca causing some dissonance too, but like most of it was internal in terms of how you have to change your mindset and going back to yeah. the drawing board and, and changing your mm -hmm. direction. So eh, that's, that's huge. Um, now kind of, I want to pivot towards the other side of things when we think about when you mentioned clinicians and grooming them, what do you think makes up some of the foundations of a good clinician, be it young or someone who's a little bit more senior? What are some of the things that you look for when you're mentoring someone? Hmm. Great question. So, actually, why don't I th let me throw it to you guys first. So I'm gonna I'm gonna like, just share some of my learnings with you. So, what do you guys think if you were to look at you know, even just think about your class in general, right? Or the next graduating class that's about to come out in 2022. Mm -hmm. What What do you think makes up a good clinician? Um, I, I oh, we probably you go thing, first. Sure. Yeah. I think the main thing that, that I've seen uh, with some of my colleagues that I really respect is um, it's actually very similar to what you were saying about instead of having the mindset of I'm going to fix this, I'm going to fix you and I'm going to do this leading them through it right a lot of that involves more listening to them like are you listening to just tell them all of the technical things that you know or are you listening to say oh you're telling me that you're you know really stressed from work and that's playing a big role in your condition right so instead of me saying okay i'm gonna fix your neck with this imp or this joint mobilization or this soft tissue maybe I got to think a little bit bigger picture and help lead you towards a better, to, to a place where you're more confident in your own body and your own physical and mental well-being. Those are sort of the things that, that I saw in some of the clinicians I really respect. And I think that's really important. So, you know, leading them through and giving them more of the locus of control. Also active listening, really important. Half the time we talk too much, right? We just, we, we want to sound smart. I realize the less I talk, sometimes I'm giving them more value uh, when I'm able to sit and really think about what they need, right? So that's one that's one thing that I think makes a good clinician. Also, just, you know, just always questioning everything. Lots of things we learn in school, I often question nowadays, but I, I think that's something that I'm proud of, where I don't just stick with the one mindset. I'm always open to someone saying, hey, why are you doing that? And then maybe even having to admit like, okay, I'm just doing that because someone told me that's the right strategy to deal with, I don't know, tendinopathy or whatever. But maybe that's not what that specific patient needs. So th those are some of the 
the, the foundations that I've found to be really helpful in my career and something I really admire in, in other clinicians. Um, yeah, just to piggyback off of Prab. I mean, wait, Daryl, did you want to dissect that first? Because um, you were you asked the question. I don't want it to be too much information at you. No, no, I think that's great. Yeah, go uh, go ahead, Wally. You go first. Um, the things... Okay, so initially, when I came out of school, I thought a good clinician... Like, I was surrounded from what I think... I mean, I think, Daryl, you've seen Tom's office, too. I don't know if you have. Like, there's just all these plaques on the wall with all these designations of all these wonderful things that he's completed and and I was extremely intimidated by that because I felt like these are the things that I got to do in order to become a very good clinician and it was intimidating in the sense that like okay I got to focus a lot on my technical skills when we were in school in UFT focus on the technical skills okay measure the range of motion feel this what are the deficits that you see objectively and then provide them with exercises in the first like three months of my practice, I was looking for anything to validate that model, that like my exercises are, is what fix is is what's fixing people. But one of the things that you mentioned even before the podcast started was that I'm literally like a speck of dust in the entire galaxy of what's happening, like in real time, right? So instead of me just focusing on the technical skills of or anything, I was more so like, how do I understand what my patient is like what do they need right most of the time i think because of the knowledge that we have acquired um we feel like we need to input that knowledge and try to see if we can validate all the work that we did but we don't realize that we're kind of taking on the position of authority completely and you're just telling the patient what to do rather than turning it into something that's known as therapeutic alliance so in order for that mm-hmm. to be a relationship, it needs to be like one of the things that even I think your 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 course sort of taught me was like asking the right questions, like understanding the patient's why. So one of the things that I kind of design, like I, I do it like intentionally every time I'm doing my assessments is like asking something like, OK, when, what was the point in your last two weeks or whatever where you were like okay, I need to go see a physio. What was that moment? And then when they answer that question, you kind of get an understanding of what it is that's bothering them. You most likely get a functional movement that causes an irritation and also what that pain is doing to their day-to-day life. And then you can kind of tailor your entire assessment around what's important to them, right? As soon as you kind of let the patient kind of lead the way too, but you're also like right behind them is is what I think kind of creates a good clinician. But it's a very, very premature, I think, definition of a good clinician. I have yeah, much yeah. more to learn. Well, but- can, I, can I tell you a story that's kind of very similar to what you were, you were just talking about? So sure. so I had, a, I had a patient very recently come in, and mm-hmm. he had actually switched over from a previous physio. So I said, hey, you were seeing this physio for the you know same condition. Uh, what was your reason for switching, right? And yeah. he, he literally said to me, he's like, I feel like he was just, he was just trying to show me he went to university and has a master's degree. <laughs> like he was like, I feel like the whole point, the, the whole time he was just trying to, trying to flex how much he knows and like spitting all these big university terms. And it mm. wasn't, I wasn't 
understanding what was actually wrong with me and when i'd say it he'd go like oh i just told you what it is like a disc degenerative disease or whatever and i'm like i don't know what that is so he Mm. said i I would often tell him the things that you know are actually bothering me and Mm -hmm. he's like i didn't feel listened to and he said i didn't he didn't even put his hands on me so you know those are those are situations where obviously everyone has their philosophies on manual therapy and palpation and whatever whatnot right but in that moment imagine i did the same thing as the other physio which we commonly want to do right like we want to say oh hey this is a rotator cuff tendinopathy you know the capacity exceeded the load etc but in that moment Mm -hmm. i i he basically told me what he needs he told me like hey i don't need the big terms just help me understand what's going on and at the same Mm -hmm. time he's like i want someone to listen and i want someone to really take an interest in what's going on with me i want them to you know palpate i want them to figure out what's going on so Mm -hmm. it would but but is we don't think about it but i almost fell into the trap of doing what i always do right so Mm -hmm. that's that's something that was like almost like a click moment for me and that just happened last week and it's been a year like we've been working for a year (laughs) so yeah it was it was exactly what you were just talking about it was i just found it very interesting right yeah yeah that's it. It's great, probably, because the thing I would say too is I remember probably like maybe three, six months into my practice, I had already started, um, you know, some of my post grad training, and and I had a patient come into the clinic that had previously seen somebody that I basically like, it was like who I wanted to be, right, as a clinician, and they were like, uh, they didn't get me better. It's like, oh my god, wow. why are you, why are you here? <laughs> like, what am I gonna do, right? So there's that typical imposter syndrome you know, that really sets in as, as a new grad. Um, but what was actually interesting is I, to be honest, I still didn't really know what was happening with this individual. I just knew what his, his biggest concerns were. And I knew this guy loved motorcycles and I knew jack shit about motorcycles, nor, you know, would my parents, especially my mom ever let me even sit on a bike. Never mind, (laughs) you know, actually, you know, join this guy on, you know, a trip up to Port Dover, right on Friday the 13th. But, but it literally was the fact that this individual is exactly what you guys had just identified, right? Is this, this active listening approach, this ability to relate to, you know, what's actually happening in their social life, the impact on their psychology and whatnot. He just gave me time to actually get him better. Um, and I had all the skills that I needed. It didn't require, actually, to be honest, anything overly extensive beyond what, you know, level of competency that we learned in our entry-level degrees. And next thing you know, I'm treating his, his partner, and then I'm treating a, another family member and friend. Next thing you know, I've got a whole bunch of bikers coming into the clinic. I'm like, oh, my God. That's the I guess best. I better take, better take a course on, you know, bikers. I'm like, oh, wait, that doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> But it, but you guys hit some really, really important points there, right? That, you know, I think you, you know, you, I think it, again, it comes back to kind of a post I did the other day, which is, you know, kind of talking the talk. And I think, you know, what you guys are saying, like, well, you've actually started to implement some of those, you know, those considerations and you've changed, you know, how you script and you ask people, you know, what, what was the turning point, you know, for them to actually make a decision after two, three years or 18 months of pain to come in and see us, Right. You know, we think about think of like things we see in reality of, of just day to day life. Like, you know, when I grew up, it was the TSN turning point. It changed some sporting event. People's lives are no different than that, right? So I actually really like how you guys at you know with with Tom and at Calm 
you know, you guys have come up with that question. I actually really like that. I think it's a question that people that, you know, if they listen to this, they should actually ask that and see what types of responses they get from patients. It may not, it may not work for every patient, but it will, I guarantee it will work for certain personalities that come through that clinic. Um, yeah. You know, and same thing as what you were saying, Prab, too, is, you know, oftentimes, you know, people come to us because we didn't answer those magic questions, right? You know, do you know what's wrong with me? You know, how long is this going to take to get better? You know, and I and I think you guys nailed it too, though, a little bit is, you know, especially about, you know, this, you know, what are you going to do to fix me, right? But I think we have to be mindful because you guys identified the fact that, you know, we're not fixers in every case. However, we often see the pendulum swing in our professional lot, right? So people all of a sudden, oh, we don't fix anybody. There's still going to be a core group of people that we just need to fix them, right? You know, I sprained my ankle yesterday. I played hockey for the first time, my back's been sore, just fix it, right? But there is a core group of people. If we actually use a biopsychosocial approach in its truest sense, that need a coach, they need a facilitator, they actually, there's lots of people that actually just need a cheerleader. And we can actually play all those roles. Where I believe the skill, and I would even argue at times, and I think Jim Millard, who's a good mentor and coach buddy of mine, would agree, like, I actually think that's the art. The art is in our communication, our ability to know how to communicate to people, not just communicate, right? And the one thing that you guys have also hit the nail extremely well on the head is it's active listening. And if you really look at Google reviews, you look at internal feedback into a clinic, you ask people, you know, why do they rate you 10 out of 10 on a, you know, an experience score? It's because you listened to them. It's usually because you provided them with a plan. It wasn't because you mobilized them, right? Now, don't get me wrong. Like you guys may use mobilizations. You may use manipulations. You may use exercise. You may use acupuncture, IMS, like whatever it may be. You may use that as part of the skills required in your expertise to get them better. I think the underlying thing that people forget is even when we use manual therapy, for example, it's still the interaction that happens during that manual therapy that is extremely valuable. And again, we're having a huge impact on the nervous system. That's what the evidence would suggest. So to say that, you know, when we see a lot of, I think a lot of inflammatory discussions on social media, it's actually fine to have a discussion. The key thing is just what do you do with that information, right? To say that it doesn't work isn't accurate either because it certainly has an influence on the system but it's just how do you put the appropriate tools in place with a patient and what you guys just identified in both of those scenarios is that you didn't apply the appropriate skills or tools because you didn't listen to the patient right so that's just something that's kind of interesting to see so you know i think you guys nailed you know exactly some key attributes for clinicians the the interesting thing though, and I'll kind of summarize it all in a second, but I'm curious, why do you think the first thing, based on what you guys said though, everyone goes direct to clinical skills as their post-grad training? And I did the same thing too. Like, why do you think we, like, why is it that that's the way to do it? Even I, though you guys know so much more than I did when I graduated. I think, I think it's honestly because of what you said. Like there was a moment where you had someone, a patient that came in from someone who you looked up to. They probably had like a, bunch of like designations on themselves too like they probably had they're probably f camp certified maybe or some sort of like skills that you think that you need in order to be as effective as as them i think when you kind of see that and also like have this model at uft where i'm not trying to bash uft obviously like i can't 
I can't expect them to teach me everything, but like, it, there's like this mindset immediately where like, I think you immediately feel like an imposter in every every surrounding that you're in. You just don't have that clinical confidence naturally, and you try to fill in that confidence. I think by um, filling in um, technical skills, so that if anyone, it's almost like I think. I feel like you're trying to get more and more um, confidence through something that is very, very tough to kind of understand, like biomechanically or technically. Um, I think I think it's it's I think it's there in the beginning, just because that sense of imposter is very, very high coming out of school. Mm-hmm. That's just for me, though. Yeah. No. Yeah. I feel I feel similar, and the the main thing for me that I think about is I know there's not going to be a hundred percent success rate. I know I'm not going to necessarily fix every single person quote-unquote like fix fix every person that walks in the door but i don't want a situation where someone came in and i couldn't help them because i didn't know enough and i think that's often what we think when we first graduate we're like oh these courses are going to help us know more which will translate to more people getting better which will translate to more people coming in etc which you know like we were talking about before, it's not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting too, right? Because if you look at, there's a consumer report, right? Which was basically CPA, Canadian Physio Association, went to, you know, basically your end consumer, which is, you know, potential patients and clients, asking, you know, what do you value in, in a physio, right? Um, and one of the things was, though, is, you know, somebody that is, you know, what they were leaning towards is sort of a lifelong learner. I don't think patients expect that we know everything. It's actually us, I believe, that ex- that believes that patients expect us to know all, right? So if you're in it, yeah. and this is sort of you know what's so important, I think, for a lot of clinicians is especially young clinicians is okay. Well, what does mentorship actually mean, or or what's the right work environment to go to? Is I'll be honest, like I I saw a patient last week and I was like, I actually don't know what's wrong with him. I don't. It's been. X number of years, there's multiple issues going on, there's multiple comorbidities, you know, there's there's about 13 different providers that have been involved, and I'm like, holy shit, we just got to go back to the, you know, we just got to, you know, peel this back, what is, you know, what is the true challenge that we're dealing with here, and it just started back with, okay, what do you think's going on, right, but I honestly, like, I really... I guess the difference being now is I would have had confidence to say that's like let's just go back to square one and let's actually start at this slowly because at this point it's very hard to differentiate you know what it is that we're actually dealing with right now but this is what we know right as opposed to in the past to be like oh my god like traction's not going to work I don't know what to mobilize oh shit I can't manip anything here um I guess we'll do some core activation like shit that doesn't you know there's no evidence to do that in her case either but but it's just one of those things is where there's this this I think this inherent fear that we just don't know but if you actually look at it and look at the evidence no one's suggesting that we have to know everything what I would suggest is how are we resourceful in cases where maybe yeah we do have to educate ourselves a little more formally or maybe it's something that's so complex that it would make a great clinical rounds for us to talk about or maybe it's you know what does case that you want to bring up when you have a one-on-one with your clinic you know, mentor, like whether it's your clinic director, your clinic owner, it doesn't really matter. Um, or, you know what, is it one of those things where you bring to an interprofessional rounds? Like we did that stuff all the time at the hospital, right? 
um, and I see my, my, my surgeon colleagues and my doc physician colleagues that I work with, like these guys do journal clubs still once a month. Like when was the last time you saw a physio group do journal club? Like it doesn't exist, yeah, right? So it's one of those things because no one expects a physician to know everything. What I think people expect of us is to be resourceful, to figure out how do we interconnect, right? For when you really think about integrated care, right? So so I'll kind of summarize though, you know, just to go back to your question, because I think you guys nailed a couple great things there for sure. Um, and I would just like to see more people actually practice like you guys have identified and how you actually are starting to practice yourself so early in your career. But I think for people to be successful as young clinicians, I think you know there's there's a need to be coachable. Um, you know, you guys brought up imposter syndrome, and I think it's one of those things that will follow us as we actually go through all different levels of career progression. You know, I would say besides my very first year of practice, um, where I had tons of imposter syndrome. Um, the you know the next probably biggest one is when you know someone hired you to say look you're taking over our 12 clinics we heard great things about you just the the direction i had was fat in the orange i was like oh shit what's that mean it means make me more money <laughs> i was like oh shit <laughs> so there's tons of imposter syndrome because i didn't know i didn't even know anybody on the team right um and then probably the worst imposter syndrome i've actually ever had was you know basically taking over the hospital and running the entire quality and risk department, which meant every um, complaint in the entire organization came through my office, um, you know, and then, and then presenting, you know, patient experience data and stuff to, you know, to a board of directors. But, but it, so it's just sort of that key thing, though, is that if I didn't have someone coaching me along the way, and if I didn't have my mentors helping me still through that, then I would have struggled a little bit longer. So I think the key thing is, you know, be coachable, because you guys you know, your mentor, your coach has to be able to, you know, help you guys, you know, build your confidence that you actually do have competence already, right? So that I think is that key thing, right, is, you know, you need to be coachable because if you're not coachable, it's going to be hard to actually smack down a little bit of that imposter syndrome. You guys, you know, all talked about the importance and I think what is truly the art of communication so, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, Jim Millard, who's, you know, who we've taught together for many years, he's been, like I said earlier, a big mentor of mine, and he calls them power skills. It actually irritates me when people call them soft skills. It's almost like they don't hold any weight. But mm. no matter which part of your career you actually are at, if you are very skilled at communication, and you're always thinking about, you know, how to improve communication. Um, and you practice improving your communication, that's actually, and goes back to one of those coachable opportunities where it'll even strengthen you as a young prof- professional. Um, and Nick Hanna, who's a student of mine, po- you, know, you guys I'm sure know Nick quite well. Wait, did you say Hanna. Nick Cannon? No, Nick Hanna. No, yeah, no, not Nick Cannon. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I wonder if he's like Nick Cannon. Um, I, w- I would no, love to know that guy. <laughs> yeah, no, Nick, Nick Hanna was a Western grad of mine uh, that I taught and I knew he was going to do big things because he was always, you know, challenging the status quo, that's for sure. But he posted some the other day, too, because he's quite strong on the communication side, similar to Jim. Um, and one of the things, though, he said, though, is like, you know, just reading an article or, or thinking like, oh, I'm a good communicator will make you a better communicator. It's not true. You have to think about, you know, yes, you learn the, the-, the theory, but how are you learning the applied concepts of things you know how are you practicing and how are you role playing so again it comes back to that coachability Mm -hmm. the other thing though that i would say is you know what we see 
and especially post pandemic, we see way more complexity. Um, you know, we deal with humans, we don't deal with robots. Um, which is also the reason because we deal with humans and the complexity of what we do, I don't think will ever be replaced by technology. So I think that's why physios have to embrace tech, but that's a podcast for another day, fellas. Um, cause we'll go on that one for a while. Um, mm-hmm. but I do think though, there's this true appreciation and awareness of what actually is the biopsychosocial approach to managing humans and managing people in, in clinical practice. You know, everyone will say the same thing. Oh, I work in a biopsychosocial approach and I'll look at practice and, you know, well, you, you know me from boot camp, and I see so many clinicians, you know, we work, probably work with over 300 clinicians right now. And I look and there's gaps in practice. Like you don't screen for psychosocial implications and factors, you know, no mm-hmm. one's screening for pelvic health dysfunction, um, or even just, let's just call it pelvic health in general in lumbopelvic hip pain and it's like well then how are you practicing in an evidence-informed way you know how are you actually thinking about things holistically as a you know when we're dealing with these you know individuals and complex individuals so it's one of those things too where it's a little bit of a challenge for me because people oftentimes will see like oh you're the business and the practice management guys like yeah yeah but there's still a there still has to be alignment with quality of care and truly practicing from an evidence perspective, right? So, you know, we know that there's multiple personalities out there. We're gonna start teaching actually how to identify the various personalities that we actually see from, you know, an end consumer perspective and what individuals come into our practices, but we don't actually adapt our practice. We don't change our behavior when we deal with a different personality. So all those discussions for people like oh don't worry if people you know fall off your list and if they ghost you it just may not be ready no no you just didn't necessarily look at the whole picture you know did you truly think about things holistically yeah sure the patient may not have been ready from a biomechanical perspective but maybe it's because you overlooked the psychosocial factors that were involved right so or maybe you you know if you look at my personality times i can be very direct i'm very assertive but I, you guys would see me change that depending on the type of patient that's in my office, right? right? Relative to also the type of clinician that I may have to work with, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so it's one of those things too about truly thinking about you know, that psychosocial approach and, mm-hmm. and truly walking the walk, not just talking the talk. Um, you know, the other thing, obviously, there is truly a practice management and a performance side to what we do. But mm-hmm. one of the things that I really want clinicians to think about, and even what you said earlier, Wally, is, you know, before we start on the, on the call, is, you know, that's the one that we review the numbers with, right? Or we go through the scoreboard. Mm-hmm. And what, what I always worry about with clinicians is that they see that as that numbers side, right? And people are numbers adverse. They don't like to talk about metrics. We don't really love performance. Even though it's uncomfortable. Single- it's it uncomfortable is. to be honest. Right. Like uh, talking about it, it forces Yeah, no, it forces you to really reflect and, and the the toughest part for me to always fill out is like the fall offs or like the drop offs and yeah. and understanding the reasoning behind it and and really reaching out to them after and what what do you say oh, in yeah. the email? Should you email them? Should you call them? Are you ready to face the answer? Are you really reading in between the lines what and what they're saying in terms of, Oh no, like I don't have time or I don't have this or I, like what are you really getting from that conversation oh, yeah. like yeah. It, like what are you going to fill in because those moments are really I think pivotal to, for you to understand yourself as a person not even just a yeah. clinician but like understand like are you affirming your 
biases or are you really understanding what's happening yeah like mm-hmm. like on that note something that you know because i work in two different cities there's actually a very big demographic difference in the two areas i work in like oakville versus mm-hmm. Saga. and one thing that early on i sort of was having a hard time figuring out is i was having a lot of uh, success in oakville like there was you know a lot of people coming back in People were committed to their care, etc. People had the coverage to come in, right? But the mm-hmm. way that I was practicing in Oakville was actually not translating Miss Saga. And I sat down with my mentor there saying, hey, like, you know, what do you uh-huh. think? Because there's definitely something missing here. What do you think is being overlooked? And they're saying, like, that demographic is different. Maybe over here, the area that you're in, maybe you need to, to shift your approach and listen to them more and, you know, show them the value of coming back in and part of that might mean uh doing doing some more manual or or you know maybe seeing them uh maybe seeing them for 10 minutes extra when you have a break so that they feel like you gave them the value because that's something that i wouldn't necessarily do in oakville because it's full but in this saga if i have some breaks Maybe I'm going to give them 10 extra minutes because I had the time at that time, right? So it's just some ideas that were thrown forward. And then I noticed mm-hmm. when I did some of those things, um, it, it was better. It improved. And that's just mm-hmm. what those patients needed at, in that demographic. So it's exactly what you were saying. Like You, you need and to yeah. figure out why they're dropping off. And maybe you're not up giving them the value. And it's hard to admit. Maybe you're, they're not seeing the value you're providing. And you need to figure out mm-hmm. what that value needs to be. And also, before I forget, like, um, the the comment that you made about the power skills and not soft skills, what you were describing as someone who's, I think, a great clinician, it reminds me of the character uh, Saul Goodman um, from from Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, because technically speaking, he wasn't as great as his older brother, who was like this very esteemed lawyer, right? Not even close to it. But the thing that made him very special was the fact that he could communicate at the level of the person that he is talking to. Yeah. So be it the elders, be it someone who he's trying to hustle, be it a cop, be it a drug dealer of like the like an empire. Like he knew how to communicate at various levels and avoid so many things and actually pave or carve different paths just based on his power skills. Yeah. And those things are like those things are so critical. So I think you know even just to what you said as well, Prab. Like I think you got some decent advice, right? You know, it is different. I think that what we tend to go to though is right off the bat, it's like I have to provide more value that will probably cause you to burn out a little bit, right? Like I'm going to give them an extra ten minutes. Well, but maybe you don't have to. It may not be manual therapy. Like if you one of the things though that I think is so important that you identify though is you were dealing with different demographic. You're dealing with probably a lot more cultural diversity with your, you know, one of your locations relative yeah. to your other location. Yeah, You're dealing yeah. with different social determinants of health. And in there though exists very, very different patient expectations and very, very different personalities. And in, and in probably much more in your location in Mississauga, English may not be the first language of majority of your actually, patient that's a, that's a huge thing that you just said i actually started treating a lot of people in hindi which is like mm-hmm. a pretty big language for indians yeah. that live in miss saga and that's not something that i did before but then i mm-hmm. thought about it, i'm like hey these guys probably speak hindi at home 
maybe that would help establish their rapport. So now almost every time I get a you know older uh, Indian person or yep. even um, someone who speaks Urdu, which is a very similar language, the whole mm-hmm. session in Hindi, they're coming back every time. And it's just, it's very interesting how like something, like you said, you don't always have to give the 10 minutes, right? Those are those things That's that right. we, we were talking about, about burnout mm-hmm. and things you need to, you know, make sure you keep in mind. Yeah. But it's like what you said, different culture, different people. Mm-hmm. Remember, because you guys are always, and I still do this now, so don't think I'm like I'm some guru that has figured this out. I haven't fully, but the automatic default is to go back provider centric. Okay, what can I do? As opposed to thinking about okay, patient centered. Okay, this patient, I need to demonstrate empathy, and I need to give them some autonomy into the into this actual interaction. Right, so the autonomy that you gave them as well as you know where do you want this to go but the key thing is is maybe in some of those cases they don't understand any of your any of the communication but now that you've actually offered for a very specific you know you know cohort of that patient population you're much more relatable and they'll understand a lot more of what you're potentially saying right because i think we completely i believe undervalue our expertise as physios um yeah. And I think just rehab disciplines in general do. Like if we think about what physicians do and, and how much time they have with patients and how much they educate relative to what patients rely on us to do as primary care providers and spend time with patients. Like, you know, five to 10 minutes with a primary care physician versus like 45 minutes to an hour with us as a physio. You know, when you think about the complexity of what we download onto patients in those interactions, it's extremely complex for someone that technically, if we think about what how we should communicate at a health literacy level of grade three, we literally give so much information that they can't process at all. And even what they do process, we know that 50% of it is not remembered correctly, right? So if you think about it, you know, we already set ourselves up to be honest for failure, despite the fact that we're trying our best to help every single person that comes through our door. So I think, you know, one of the things that I would stress for you guys is again, to not fall back onto providers, you know, centricity, but it's difficult to do. And you have to unlearn that because that's how we trained you, right? We were all trained to be providers. And yeah, fair enough. We had like a motivational interviewing session and we talked about patient experience and this, but it, we never practiced it, right? Like if you think about a clinical case study that we did in, you know, your final unit at UFT in orthopedics is a freaking paper case. Try to find me one patient that you guys have had in the last year that fit any of those paper cases. They don't exist, right? Because we deal with humans, we don't deal with paper cases, right? But it had to teach the structure to give you guys those basic competencies or those entry level competencies. But now you guys have to take that to the whole next level, right? And I think this is where we'll kind of end on this because we talked about the personalities and obviously value driven care is obviously still, you know, dependent on the expectations and the preferences of patients, right? So while well, you would have learned that in I think week, we would have talked about that in week two and three of that challenge mm-hmm. with me. So, you know, mm-hmm. you can, you can teach probably about that one. Cause I know you were there. I checked your homework. Um, Teach away, man. Yeah. But <laughs> I unsubscribed one, though after week three. Yeah, yeah, you did. You did. In this case, in this case, I was never subscribed. <laughs> I wasn't there. Yeah. Um, good. I'm just I think it's it's the practice management piece, right, and performance. So we talked about it. So like, think about like back in physio school. Like, how are we assessed, right? We are like, okay, we had a test, and we had a you know clinical evals, and then you know we had some clinical instructor evaluate us, and we were always worried like, oh, what was the score? 
But then we leave school and we no longer want to look at any of that stuff. Right? It's kind of weird, right? Because, you know, we're extremely competitive. You get into the program. No matter what anybody says, we're extremely competitive still. You're like, oh, what they get? You know what they got. Um, and then we come out of school and no one wants to f know shit. Right? And it's, and it's stressful. But the problem is, is can people look at it without true context and understanding? Right? So if I was to say to you guys, you're going to go in and do an assessment tomorrow, but you cannot know any data points. You won't know if a test is positive or negative. But it's a shoulder patient. And you can't write anything down. But you got to get that patient better. You guys would look like a bunch of fools. But if I was to say we should look at data points that actually provide us really key information, what's, you know, look at it from a subjective, what are your clinical hypotheses, what are you confirming in objective exam, what tests were positive and negative, what was, what was weak, what was strong, what was tight, what was short, all those things that you guys know in your structured exam, all those data points help you come up to a conclusion, maybe right, maybe wrong, doesn't matter, just brings you up to a conclusion that is going to actually help you have some impact on that patient's life, right? And it, you said this earlier, probably, you may not get that patient better, but our goal as physios, we can't fix everybody. But my goal every day is, can I have a positive impact on that person's life? Even if I have to yeah. refer them to my clinical colleague, that's a physician, they have to wait 18 months. Unfortunately, I can't change the freaking system. But knowing that that's the that right person, right place, right time for them is ideal. Time's the issue, but you know it's one of the things we have to think about. But if you think about it from a true lifelong learning perspective, what are you learning and what are you developing professionally if you don't know any of your data points in your clinical practice, right? So if you think about it, we should be able to evaluate and understand very key data points along the patient's journey once they actually sit in our care. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a whole shitload of things that happens in a patient life cycle beyond just, you know, when someone comes into my assessment room. But as a physio, I need to know what happens at the time of the assessment. How does that patient actually end that plan of care with me? But if we don't measure those data points, how the hell do you know where you should be improving? How should you know what decision you should make in order to go into the next step? Do I call that patient? Do I email that patient? Right? And I think when you guys look at it, you know, while you said this is like someone gets onto your fall-off list, you're like, oh my God, shit, I got to call all these patients. Holy shit, I don't have time. And man, Tom's going to be on my ass. And you know, now that Nat's on that leave and He's all gonna these things. He's going to make another reel. He's going to make another reel about Hey, Tom's going to Chile. Nat's on Matt leave. We're yeah. Good. When you come back, your your fall-off list is going to be three pages, and I'm going to be like, I told you so. Lord Almighty. But here's the thing, though. the one. So first of all, the number one reason people on your fall-off list is because they didn't know to come back. It had nothing to do with whether you weren't good enough. That's, your, that's our own inherent biases. And I've looked at these for 15 years, and I've looked at them through multiple clinics across the country. They did not know to come back. There was a few odd ducks in there, but if you look at it, 80% of the patients that are on a wait list or have or sorry on our follow-up left had nothing to do with you so let's mm. leave that leave that, that part we won't we can dive into that a little bit deeper but but the key thing is is that if you call those people you know knowing that oh shit i didn't know to come back okay well that should tell you to change your clinical practice you know mm. do you have some form of touch point in there that actually takes patients through phases 
Because if you think mm. that patients go from initial assessment to completed plan of care, like that's the silliest way to actually look at a patient's experience journey. Like people are coming to us predominantly because they have pain. So once mm. they get out of pain, and let's be honest, we're actually very good at getting people symptomatically better in three or four sessions. So if we do that, and we don't, they don't realize that there's another phase or there's another part or milestone to their journey, they're gonna stop coming. For sure. Hey, yeah, yeah. Wally, thanks, man. Yeah. I feel great. Uh, yeah, but you're just gonna reoccur. Like, we're, we we have to get you back to like you know, working out. You got to get back to CrossFit. Yeah, yeah, my back's great. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna see you in like six months with another blown disc, right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so it's it's that part. But if you don't do some of those strategies, you may not actually ever learn how to communicate differently. So if you, mm-hmm. same thing too is we look at that fall off of like, oh man. That guy was such a pain in my ass. Like, oh, I'm kind of glad he's on my fall off list. But the reality is, is he just may not have actually been well suited yet. Maybe behaviorally, he wasn't ready to actually do what we asked him to do. Or maybe he needed to see a different provider before he saw us or in collaboration with us. Maybe he needed to see a psychotherapist. Maybe he needed to see a psychologist. Maybe he needed to see a sports doc at the same time. Like, maybe he needed to see a physiatrist at the same time as seeing us. Right. So I think there's just there's so much learning that happens. Right. Why does somebody self discharge versus why does that next patient successfully complete their plan of care? It really shouldn't be about, you know, you have a self discharge. You suck. It should be about what did, what can I learn from all my successful cases and what skills can I transfer over to those patients that self discharge? There's no practice that I've ever seen across the country that will have no self-DCs. And if someone says they never have a self-discharge, they're 100% full of shit. The reality, though, is that the (laughs) best clinicians learn how to take skills from those successful cases. And they learn actually in, you know, having those difficult conversations with some patients and learning more about, you know, what may, what may have, could I have done even better, right? And you guys have to think about those strategies, you know, what could I do even better next time? It, it's about lifelong learning, but this is the part that irritates me the most about physios. They say they're about lifelong learning, but they're really not interested in finding out why people, you know, ha- you know, maybe why they chose to stop coming to see us. Maybe mm-hmm. why they didn't actually complete their full plan of care. Right? Yeah. So it's just, it's just a, a, I think that part of, of, again, of that young clinic that goes back to, are you coachable? But also, are you willing to look not just at data points that are about you know what you and I do in initial assessment, but we should be looking at data points and you know key measurables right from the entire experience of the patient along that journey, which does start at the initial assessment, which we are all trained in, but no one was trained in how you know what's that workflow look like from the beginning to the actual, let's say, we'll just loosely call it the end. So that's sort of where I would say from that perspective, what I'd really like people to think about, less about numbers, more about data points that will continuously evolve your practice. When you say data points, do you mean like specific indicators for seeing if they're improving or are you referring more to like, oh, they're coming in this many times a week, this is my retention, this is my number of unscheduled patients, like what exactly are you referring to? Yeah, that's a good one. So, yeah, so all those things are actually, they could be data points, right? So it's also, you know, again, the ability to look at it from a clinic owner and a a clinician perspective is what makes sense to you, right? So, for example, like patient visit average. So that's exactly what you're talking about on the retention side. 
And there's so much debate, you know, do you talk about it, do you not talk about it? But at the end of the day, you can never present, you know, to you guys and say, hey, you know, well, your patient visit average sucks. I have hey, to figure out... You have to get that real... Well, I don't actually. I haven't seen your scoreboard. So, uh, <laughs> hypothetically, you know, your patient visit average isn't doing well. So, and that's fine. The key thing, though, is that what is it about your practice that you're going to change that you can use that? Because that to me is just an objective measure, right? It's yeah. it's a quantitative measure. I want to know what is the behavioral metric we can change that will reflect an improvement on your visit average. Because you can't just say to a physio, you know, well, I need you to go from, you know, a PBA of five to seven and you have three months to do it because you're going to be like, uh, okay, but what I'm doing now gave me a PBA of five. So I'm not actually sure what to do other than just telling people to come more often. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you won't feel great about it. Right. Because again, you're going to struggle with the quality versus, you know, the balance between quality and business. But the reality mm. is, is I would look at it and say, well, you're probably not communicating the plan very well, right? Mm. So if I was to look at it, I would look at things like, okay, are you treatment planning? Yes, I know you are because you guys have your action plans and I've seen them. What I would want to know is, okay, well, how are you overcoming people that say I can't come that often, right? Or, yeah, this is a great plan, but you're not, you know, I can't afford it. What are you doing with that stuff? So it, it actually may not even be a, a situation where your PBA is the problem. It actually, the ref, or it's reflected in the PBA as the issue, but the mm -hmm. issue actually is you just aren't communicating with enough assertiveness to get that patient through. I can't afford physio. And to be fair, like shit, like I wouldn't pay for a physio if I didn't know what the hell I was going to get either, right? Whereas the yeah. next patient books out your full plan of care, and you're like, what the hell did I do different, right? So it's it's mm -hmm. those things for me are an example, right? So yeah. utilization, like why is your schedule sixty percent full when it should be eighty percent full? Right. What are you doing in there that's going to change that? Okay. Are you showing patients that there's a phases, there's phases or stages or milestones to their plan of care? Like that's sort of where I would go. But if you don't see changes in that, then, you know, you actually will never know how to change your practice. And if you don't know how to sort of create some of those strategies, and remember, not every strategy works. These are all like little science experiments, right? Your personality is different than my personality. It's different than Prab's personality. You know, Prab, you have a superpower that I don't have. I would not do as well with some of those patients that you do because I do not speak Hindi. Yeah, and I think that's a superpower, right? Um, whether you can, you know, negotiate a higher split for that, uh, we'll talk about that another day. But, um, <laughs> but I think, you know, when... It's just one of those things where it's again I can I can find a clinical rationale for every metric that we would look at. That's why to me they're they're data points. Same thing too is if I look at a patient and this is what we do often is someone's like, oh my owner wants me to book a full plan of care out. I was like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, but I can tell you not every patient's going to do that. But if you recommended, so I'll kind of ask you guys this. So if you recommended that I come and see you ten times, right? And, you know, one, one time I actually booked all 10. The next time I book one, what do you guys do with that information? Hmm. Yeah. Right? So the key thing is, is every physio does the exact same friggin' thing that they would do with every patient that comes to the door. But that is a behavioral difference, right? Or a personality difference potentially, right? On the patient side. So you have to change your behavior. But if you treat... The patient that books 100% of what you recommended, 
the same as someone who books 10% of what you recommended, then you missed the boat. It has nothing to do with get on your follow-off list. You did not actually adapt care in order to address that patient. That patient mm-hmm. doesn't understand therapy yet. Maybe that patient's super friggin' busy and it's like, I don't have time for this shit. And I'm going to revisit that. Do these goals make sense? Right? Does the plan that I mapped out to you, does that still make sense to you after you went home and you spoke to your partner? You know, you took that home to your kids. You, you know, you took that to your mom or your dad. Like, I might have to get on the phone with mom and dad. Especially like, you know, mm-hmm. Prab for you. Like, you may see a lot of younger kids, right? Because you guys, you know, with your owners, they see a lot of dancers. They see a lot of athletes. Like, you are going to have to deal with the parents mm-hmm. who may not be in the assessment room. So they may only book one visit because they don't know. Right. So it's, but again, it's, it's taking the end or understanding data points because they have to have clinical relevance and retention pisses people off. But I would argue it. I'd be like, well, how many of your patients actually graduate and how do you celebrate that graduation? And then do you discharge those patients this is obviously a, you know, a huge debate we have in the industry, Yeah. but mm-hmm. it's in private, it's private practice, right? People pay for value. They don't pay for the deal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like all all the things you were just talking about, like adapting to the patient. Not every patient's the same, and then using the specific parts of the plan to communicate to them why they should come back. That stuff is is definitely key, and that mm-hmm. those are all things that I've been trying to integrate into my practice. Yeah, um, and the yeah. key thing though is those are all teachable, but there's yes. no yeah. there's no secret sauce though. And this, you know, the one thing that I would say when I look at it from, you know, my coaching program specifically is, you know, I have tons of clinic owners that I work with that I train their staff, but the ones that are the most successful with that is the ones that are actually continuously working on role-playing in the clinic, right? Because the key thing is, is a lot of people will still do, hey, let's do a case review in clinical rounds. Like, yeah, yeah, sure, let's do that. But what about you know, really identifying, well, what's the prognosis? What's the predicted outcome for this potential patient in this diagnosis? Yeah, okay, what's the frequency we'd recommend? Oh, sounds great. Okay, ones that they can't afford it. Ones that they don't have time to come into clinic. Like, those are the hard things. I don't have childcare. These things are actually what's friggin' hard about our job. Coming with the diagnosis and the treatment plan's easy. Even if you don't know, it's still easy. Just break it down into smaller steps. But the, the hardest part is, is having those difficult conversations and none of us were trained to do it and none of us like to do it. So majority of times what I see is immediately a young clinician will just back off and reduce frequency right off the bat, which is like you just set yourself up for a, a much bigger a hill to climb. And the other thing though that I see is when physios, young clinicians don't know what's going on with a patient, they actually see them less often. I can think of nothing worse. If I don't know what's going on, I see that patient way more frequently early on until I have a good understanding with that patient with what's actually happening. Yeah, and that's where I think the, um, we are talking about this before, but like the clinical confidence to say, hey, you know what, even if I don't necessarily know what's going on, I know I'm gonna still be able to provide you with some positive value because of everything that we've learned and my communication skills and you know me listening to what you're communicating to me about how this is affecting your life so we we undervalue what we can actually do mm-hmm. even when we don't necessarily exactly know what's going on so for sure like that that hit the nail on the head man i wish we could keep talking for hours but um 
just to wrap things off and close off with some strong points there's a question we tend to ask everyone that comes on the podcast and it's if you could have a billboard you know on the gardener expressway going to toronto if you could have a billboard where you could write anything that you want that you think would have the most impact on people what would be on that billboard oh wow that's a fantastic it's question a, i actually am going to use that i'm going to use that at all my interviews moving forward thanks guys you should, you should, you should give us some credit though oh yeah, no, yeah. You, should, no, you, should, you should give credit to tim ferris for that one tim ferris is the is the guy that i stole that from word, podcast word. we you know standing on the shoulders of giants <laughs> Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's okay though. If you guys didn't tell me about the whole Tim Ferriss thing, I wouldn't have known. I would have totally referenced you guys. So I'm gonna reference you guys. Wait, you never heard of Tim Ferriss? No, no, I have, but I had never actually there. heard. I never heard the Billboard question. Yeah. Oh, it's a great yeah. one. We, yeah, we love that one for sure. Yeah, I think it is probably a little bit cliche to be honest, but I honestly think if I look back to some of the days when I had my ego popped a bit too, I would just say it would be be coachable. Um. No matter where you are too in your career, um, you know if I didn't if I didn't have the coaches and the mentors that I st- you know still do to this day even, um, there's no way my career would have sort of advanced you know to where it is now or maybe as some people say you know as quickly as it has, um, but it it's certainly because I would never turn down an opportunity to you know have a conversation with somebody I looked up to or somebody that I knew was would be willing to have just that crucial conversation and not be down a peg or two. So I think it would be a matter of be coachable. Plus on the billboard side, it would link nicely to, you know, obviously a call to action for, you know, one of our, one of our actual you know, businesses. So that part I think would go quite well. Your on the link billboard. tree. <laughs> yeah. That's beautiful. For sure. It's true though. Yeah. We got to, got to check. I like that one because it can be applied to anyone though. Not just could, like anyone, credit and, owners. Yeah. And anything too anything like so, so many things in life like even yeah even patients like some some people there's been times people come in and they almost act like they, they already know more than you about what's going on and once they finally like calm down a bit and listen and understand that's when they really start getting better and i, mm-hmm. I think that's a great one to apply just in general in life like as soon as i started checking my own ego in you know career family life relationships and thinking about okay what am i really doing the best i can is there really no room to improve the way i'm dealing with this situation and pretty much all the time there's always a way to do it in a better way right so mm-hmm. I, I i love that one that's definitely something i'm going to take away from this awesome for all right sure, thanks guys. guys i i know yeah we can i'm sure we can always do a part two down the road too you know get get some of the other you know key speakers on your podcast then i'm happy to circle back with you 100 we, we should even do one maybe we'll bring uh tom on here too we'll we have little, to bring uh, tom in here bring together. that's gonna be amazing i'm surprised we haven't brought him already no yeah no, we, we brought I, I him on once like um before but like now it's like recently for, yes, like sorry, a nice recently. We we should we should get both of these guys on. It'll be it'll yeah. be a blast. It'll be great, and honestly, like with everyone that comes on, we could honestly talk for so long. We just we try to make it digestible for the people listening, mm-hmm. and that's the only reason we unfortunately. No, it's, it's not even it's that too, and it's it's also the fact that like I was reflecting as we were talking. I'm like I'm like lost in this conversation in in the sense that like I'm just it's just flowing so well. Yeah, there's right, so, but yeah. then. When I when I kind of like listen back at it, there's so many things as that Daryl's sharing that may seem 
very simple at like first but like you just need time to actually like really listen to it and apply it yeah so i i think that that's it's a good point to stop at but it definitely requires a second part of course then we're we're gonna do that for sure yeah I'm I'm game anytime. You guys just just reach out and we'll uh, we'll definitely hook up for a part two. No problem. One hundred percent. Well, guys, I hope I hope you guys got as much value from that as me and Willie did. And same thing as usual. Links gonna be in the bio. All of our um, all of Daryl's links are going to be in the bio too to everything he's been doing. PT Harmony all of his resources for uh, new clinicians and uh, PT residents. We're going to put all of that stuff in the bio. So, and, and if you guys have any questions that you want to ask Daryl as well, you know, make sure you message us, send us a DM and we're going to, we're going to get on that for sure. We'll also include like his handle and everything. Of course. Yeah. All of that stuff will be there. So thanks for, thanks for joining us guys. We're going to keep seeing you every two weeks for new episodes. This has been the PT lens podcast, probably and Daryl. Take care, guys. Thanks, guys. Cheers.